Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm sorry I'm talking so quickly, but I want to get right to it because I'm very, very excited about today's guest. Um, one of my absolute favorite people. Um, also, uh, uh, shockingly on point. We did not plan this, but I actually have the host of the foremost legal podcast in America who happened to be scheduled. We were going to argue about other things because it's August and why not? And then, of course, the indictments dropped. So I have none other than the uh, great Sarah Isger of Advisory Opinions, the best legal niche podcast in America. Uh, Sarah, welcome to The Remnant. I just want to note that when you say favorite human, that actually drops me pretty far down in terms of favorite, you know, alive things in your life. True. I didn't say you're one of my favorite mammals, but that also could be interpreted weird. I assume there's plants that probably rank higher than humans for no, you. No, I, 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 I actually, now that I think about it, there's some plants I have some deep affection for, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't mean affection for consuming them, but that's a different conversation. Well, you know, you have the trees that all like are speaking to each other through their root system. And then you have the trees that are using, uh, you know, fungus to speak to each other and send messages. I mean, they're pretty sentient at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I say at this point as if that's a new development for them. No, the new development is for us to know that. <laughs> I can tell because I've, I've become quite, a, quite the student of Sarah Esger that you were kind of dreading talking about this stuff. <laughs> How did you know? Because you kind of have the manic kind of conversational style of someone who's afraid to fly sitting next to you on a plane. Um, <laughs> I like my shoes. You see my shoes? These shoes are interesting. You know, the funny thing about shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're great shoes. Laces. Um, no, you're right. I am. There's a few reasons for that. Can I guess one of them? Yeah. And tell me if I'm right. The Mar-a-Lago indictments as you so eloquently have put it many times, are pretty cut and dried because it's just documentation of someone saying, let's do crime. And these indictments are an argument, right? It's just, it's an argument that we're all going to be forced to have. There are two sides to it. It's more complicated. It's not, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you agree that Donald Trump is in fact guilty of doing the bad things, but whether they are crimes that are worth distracting from the easier stuff is a political question and you are preemptively exhausted by the whole thing. Am I, am I, am I close? Jonah and I did not talk about this beforehand. He has no insight <laughs> into everything I've just written this morning for our new newsletter, The Collision. And it turns out, I guess I don't need to write it because Jonah could have written it for me. Um, this is why I don't play poker. 
I thought, by the way, I'm a Scorpio. And, you know, when you're like sort of a junior high type age, you, you know, sort of discover uh, astrology slash back in the day when there was nothing to do late at night, when you couldn't sleep, you would call that star hotline number and they would tell you your horoscope for the day and that would burn some time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I used to think that like as a Scorpio, I'd be very good at like vengeance and poker and, you know, Edmund Dante's Count of Monte Cristo style. And then in my 20s, I realized I'm terrible at all of those things. <laughs> uh, I have a the worst poker face ever, um, mostly for people who I don't respect. That just like drips off my face. And terrible at uh, revenge of any kind because I have the memory of a goldfish. So someone will be like, don't you hate that person? I'll be like, really? Why? And they're like, they, you know, ran over your cat. And I'm like, I don't remember that. So it's funny you say this because back, I think it's a happier way to live life in one respect. Back when, when I was at National Review, People would say terrible things about us, about me, about NRO, all these things. And I'd get very angry for a while. And then like a year and a half later, I'd have to text or call or email Catherine Lopez and be like, remind me why we hate this person. Um, because I, they're asking yes. me for a favor now and they're apologizing for something. And I don't remember if I should still hold a grudge. So, And of course, Catherine Lopez <laughs> being the four, most Catholic, Catholic person, whoever Catholic was always like, forgive them, forgive them. You always forgive them. So anyway. But she had a list. She did keep a list because she's also <laughs> Irish. <laughs> Here's what they did. You should forgive them, but let's remember. Yeah, exactly. That's I, I, That sums up like 800 years of Irish history, by the way. But anyway, all right, so. But, but you're totally right. You're totally right that I think the Florida case is strong because it's focused and it's narrow. Um, the law is clear cut. The facts applied to the law. I mean, it's, it's really textbook in a lot of ways. This is uh, for those who need remembering. Um, this is the willful retention of class or of national security information and the uh, tag along obstruction charges. We had the superseding indictment last week. That didn't change anything. If anything, it made it a little bit stronger, not a difference in kind, but a difference in degree probably. Um, and I guess, you know, expectations are everything. I had higher expectations for this indictment that it would be narrow. I thought it would be focused maybe entirely or at least almost entirely on the so-called like fake slate of electors, fraudulent elector scheme, whatever, you know, phrase you want to pick where many states sent in electoral college votes basically certificates that voted for Donald Trump to Congress to try to like change the results. So chaos, delay things. This was like part of the Mike Pence endeavor of sorts to like give him the ability to do something that he didn't have the ability to do. Anyway, I thought it would be really focused on that. Um, if you remember back in the day in sort of the wake of January 6th, we talked a little bit about incitement and I was like, I don't, I don't think you got it there. Mm -hmm. There is an incitement in this indictment, but there's, just a whole lot of stuff and stuff. Um, you know, the top of the indictment says the president has, you know, a constitutional right to speak like every American. He has a right, you know, to call people and all sorts of stuff. And that's not what this is about. And then it's 45 pages, good chunks of which are very much about that. And so it's really hard um, to separate out what the criminal stuff is that they're trying to describe mm -hmm. versus just the atmospherics, which are outrageous. Right. 
not denying the outrageousness. But there's a difference between impeachable conduct and criminal conduct. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think we're just going to have to stipulate because otherwise we're just going to have to go over all that again. He was rightly impeached. In my opinion, he should have been convicted. We would have so many more nice things right now if that had happened. A Republican primary that is interesting and about policy? Yeah, that'd be interesting, you know. Um, or about anything other than Donald Trump. I would, you know, like, you know, the, the, the finale of Lost. I'd be fine if that's what they were debating. But, and Mitch McConnell made a grave mistake kicking the can thinking, oh, the Democrats will take care of this for us. The justice system will take care of it. History will take care of it. Uh, the chuds, the gnomes, the mole people, someone will take care of it for us. So that said, okay, so the the immediate, the insta reaction, including from many friends of mine um, on the Twitters and elsewhere, was that uh, this is, this is going to boil down to Trump's state of mind. So can you explain that for us? Like, well, put it this way. Can you explain that for us? And also, what is the strongest charge and case in, the, in these new indictments? And what is the weakest? Okay. So... Normally, you know, if we were going through the Florida indictment, for instance, I would explain to you the statute and then the charges under that statute, and we would apply the facts to the elements of the law. Right. It should be a red flag right away that that's not how I'm going to walk you through this. The statutes in question, and I, I will read some of them to you, but they're going to be so unhelpful. Um, so 18 USC 1512, everyone open your hymn books. Whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record document or other object or attempts to do so with the intent of impairing the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so. All right. So there's some problems here right off the bat. Um, what does the word corruptly mean? That is actually currently being litigated um, over at the D.C. Circuit, and this is going to be a state of mind question. Is corruptly doing the thing mm -hmm. that is we all believe is corrupt, or is corruptly that you knew the thing was wrong? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a problem. Then you have the, uh, you know, mutilates, conceals record document or other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes an official proceeding. What's captured in that otherwise? Does it still need to be, um, you know, something about documents or is this just a catch-all at the end? Again, we don't need to do like a whole law school day on this, but the point is, this is an incredibly broad statute right here. So I want to leave that one for a second. And I want to talk about 241. That's the conspiracy against rights that a lot of people were talking about in advance because we knew that this was likely based on the target letter. Um, this one is conspiracy, meaning you've got to have two people. And anytime you threaten or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution uh, or laws of the United States. So this is the example I like to give on this. Jonah, you're on your way to vote. I robbed you. Mm -hmm. I've certainly committed a crime by robbing you, but I haven't committed a federal crime if the purpose, like my purpose in robbing you is to get your watch. If, however, my purpose in robbing you 
was to prevent you, intimidate you from voting so that you feel like, you know, this was only the beginning. If you vote, I'm going to burn your house down or something. Then I've committed a federal crime under this statute. Well, you see what you're going to have to prove at trial, right? You don't have to prove that I, I mean, you have to prove that I robbed you. Sure. But now you have to prove why I robbed you. What if I didn't tell anyone why I robbed you? Mm-hmm. Or what if I told everyone that I robbed you to get your watch, but like secretly we all know I robbed you to prevent you from voting mm-hmm. because I don't like people who post about their dogs too much on Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing, but I get it. I get it. It's hypothetical. <laughs> so, okay. So this is what we mean by state of mind. Even if they prove, sorry, let me change that. They will prove that all of Donald Trump's election fraud claims were false. Mm-hmm. They will prove that a litany of human beings at various levels of government, of expertise, from the president's attorney general to his White House lawyers to state officials to random guys walking down the sidewalk all told him not only that the election wasn't stolen, but specifically for each of his claims that they weren't true. That won't be enough to win this at trial. They will have to prove that Donald Trump knew, believed, that the election wasn't stolen from him. And for a 45-page indictment, the evidence of that, I think, uh, is, you know, they have some parts of it, sure, but it's pretty weak overall. Again, if you assume that Donald, you know, they're going to have Bill Barr say, I told him the election wasn't stolen, and Donald Trump's going to be like, yeah, and I believed Rudy Giuliani instead. That's, that is fine, actually. You can believe Stupid people and dumb things. It gets to the robbing question. Um, it may seem like a good idea for me to rob you to prevent you from voting. But if I really just wanted your watch and there's just not a lot of evidence that I didn't, you know, the evidence that they have for that is that at one point he referred to what we assume uh, these are unindicted co-conspirators, but the one that we think is Sidney Powell, um, that he said her ideas were crazy shortly after the election her, you know, election fraud ideas. That's not that compelling to me, honestly, because you can think someone's ideas are crazy Mm -hmm. and just crazy enough to work, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) She's a nut, but she's on to something. She's directionally right, but her theory is wrong, is what Trump could say, yeah. Any number of options. Um, And then there are going to be some people who are going to testify, like Trump knew he lost the election, but he just couldn't admit it. Well, to himself? Because again, that's going to be a pretty decent defense. Now, in the end, it's going to come down to 12 jurors and what they think about the credibility of all of that. Um, so, okay, that's the state of mind part. Now, on the, <laughs> this is my point about it being sort of a weird way to go through this. There's then the actual sort of focus of the indictment, the actions that Trump took that they are saying are criminal. There's four. And don't get that confused with there being four charges. They're sort of unrelated to the number of charges. They're just coincidentally the same. Pressuring state election officials to change the results in sort of the immediate aftermath of the election. Two, organizing fake slates of electors. Three, using the Department of Justice to pressure state officials to change their electoral votes. And four, trying to get Vice President Pence to refuse to certify the results. It is not obvious to me how some of those are criminal, even if they prove everything. Mm -hmm. 
And I, again, outrageous, yes. Impeachable, yes. Dereliction of duty, yes. Like, this is not me defending any of this stuff. Sure. But our criminal laws are meant to be narrow. They're meant to give people notice so that before they do them, they know what they're doing is illegal. And for instance, you know, in the Department of Justice section, you have Jeff Clark, who's, um, you know, he does oil spills at DOJ and then tries to become attorney general with just, it's a crazy town part of the indictment. Certainly makes Jeff Clark look bad. I'll say that. Let me just back up on that. So um, it was fun and I was driving to where I am when these things dropped and um, I was listening to CNN and Jake Tapper was going through the unindicted co-conspirators and it was sort of like the DC version of Clue where I think this is Rudy Giuliani in the study with a candlestick, right? I mean, it was like, they, and, and. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so they got everybody except for, um, there's one that has not been named Morning District. I, Correct. I, I assume, number six does not have enough description. We just don't know who number six is. I kind of assumed is. it was Roger Stone, but um, I haven't read the whole thing be. closely. On the, on these, and, and I don't want to do this whole thing on this stuff because I know you got to do an advisory opinion shortly and I don't want you to leave all in the locker room here and people are going to go cross over and listen to that. Wait, can I read you the, the only thing we know about number six and why we don't know who it is? Sure. Co-conspirator number six. Yeah, a sex dungeon because that would be <laughs> Roger Stone. Is quote, a political consultant who helped implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. The reason I think this is funny is because the fact that we can't figure out who that is because there's too many options. <laughs> <laughs> so on the unindicted co-conspirators, uh, the morning dispatch this morning said that it was likely so that they can keep the prosecution of Trump on schedule. Um, and I was wondering, is it possible that they're also unindicted because that's a switch they can threaten to flip on these people to get them to cooperate more or that you don't think that's part of it at all? Sure. I would just think they'd already use that to get, you're going to, you've gotten whatever you're going to get. Um, so you just think it's just trying to keep the train on its tracks towards prosecuting Trump. I think that's probably right. I also think, you know, if you were trying them together, um, it would be such a zoo. Mm -hmm. You'd certainly, I think, want to try them separately if I were the government. Um, I, you know, I actually, I kind of think they should have named and indicted them. So again, I'm, I'm sort of on the other side of DOJ on this. Um, I'd be curious to read some of their internal memos on their thinking. It had to be a relatively close call because, again, some of these people are doing far more obvious criming, mm -hmm. you know, on the... Um, fake slate of electors, for instance, the one that I think is the strongest part of the indictment. Well, there's a real problem because the only line really uh, tying Donald Trump to it just says at the direction of the defendant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't actually list why, like what direction? How do you have that direct? Do you have quotes from people? Do you have witnesses? So to the extent they can show that it was at his direction, um, I think that's, pretty strong part of this case, but then you read the whole thing and it's actually all about Rudy Giuliani. Again, co-conspirator number one. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it'd be helpful to indict Rudy Giuliani then because it looks pretty clear that he crimed. And that still may happen, right? There's nothing in absolutely yeah. not indicting him here is just sort of like first things first, sort of triage kind of thing. 
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I've had this opinion for a while now. I'm not saying it's true for every fake elector out there, but I'm generally, I, 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 I've talked to some people who know some of the fake elector guys, and they made a pretty powerful case to me that at least some of them really shouldn't be prosecuted in the sense that- This indictment makes that pretty clear too, actually. Yeah. It really absolves a lot of them. Yeah, because I mean, like the way it was explained to me is, these some of these guys were just basically the general sort of boosters you see at a GOP convention, just sort of party hacks who gave some money and got this is a perk is the blah, blah, blah. And they were told, hey, look, we got cases in court. If we win, we are going to need to have lined up a new slate of electors right away. Would you be willing to be an elector? And the way that this the way this friend of mine put it is, is like, you know, when they do the Super Bowl, they actually print the world championship T-shirts for both teams. And then when one team wins, they destroy the other ones. That was the way it was sort of sold to these guys. It was like, we don't know if we're going to win in court, but if we do, we want to be ready. And like the idea that some of those people should do jail time when they were actually relying on party professionals and lawyers telling them this is the legal way, this is what we have to do legally would be really unfair to me. Yes. And right. Like all of that's true. 
And what's interesting, like storytelling wise in the indictment is that that is, it looks like actually how the plan started. Mm-hmm. But then as they start losing all these cases, the plan's going to morph because they're losing hope that that's going to work out. And so it's like, well, what if instead of waiting to win a case and instead of having this as just alternate electors, we send them in for the purpose of causing chaos or um, for the purpose of giving Mike Pence sort of uh, a rail to hold on to, to say like, ooh, I've got these two sets of electors and I don't know, so we better just delay everything. Now, there's also a part in the indictment where they (laughs) also note that's why they were filing cases in the first place was to say that there was still litigation alive. So it was like Mm -hmm. all of it. Um, I don't know, Jonah. I don't love it. Okay, so one of my um, favorite gimmicks from old TV shows and comic books was when they would have, a, I'll give you an example, a special episode of Law and Order that was continued on homicide life on the street. And Absolutely, so it was, yes. It actually really bothered me. I did not like that because I watched every Law and Order and the crossover episodes were inevitably worse. Okay, so it, in comic books, they would do it where like this story, conti- this X-Men story continues in Amazing Spider-Man and they would send yeah. readers over there. So we're going to send on the legal stuff, everybody over to advisory opinions now. And yeah. not do, I mean, well, there's some law stuff I want to talk to you about, but not about the indictment stuff, because you're going to yeah. cover that elsewhere. And you have this wonderful new product with Michael Warren, The Collision. That's all about the intersection of, which is why I keep misnabling it, the intersection, because it's about the intersection of the collision, of the nexus, of the joining, of the politics and the law stuff in all of this. And people should definitely subscribe to it. Um, but let's talk about the politics briefly. What is your um, reaction to the, the sort of collective GOP reaction to this so far? And you're putting on your, your Sarah Isger, former po- political party yeah. muckety-muck hat now, not the lawyer hat. Yeah, yeah. I think when you talk to GOP voters, um, or let me back up for a second. I think that there's a lot of talk out there about how irrational it is for GOP voters to be circling their wagons around Trump and him leading the nomination. When you actually go talk to these voters, I think it makes a lot more sense. And I think, um, you know, their worldview, while different, is totally rational, which is um, a, a combination of a few things. One, this is how they've been going after Republicans for a long time. Like, yeah, this ratcheted up because they really, really hate Trump. But it's the whole, like, they called George W. Bush a racist, then they called McCain a racist, then they called Romney a racist. And so they're going to do it to someone. And Donald Trump seems really capable of rolling with the punches, fighting back, not backing down, not giving these guys an inch. And that's what we're going to need if this is how they're going to play it. Let's put that into one bucket. Number two, yeah, Uh, maybe Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Maybe there was enough shenanigans around the voting. And I don't mean here voter fraud, but, um, you know, COVID mail-in ballots, you know, Democrats sort of working the system to make sure all of their people could vote in the easiest way possible. You, You know, I have a whole album side on how Republicans then massively screwed that up by telling their people not to vote by mail. I mean, that was just not practice, but whatever. Um, So maybe he lost, maybe, uh, you know, between COVID and the mail-in ballot stuff, there there was some shady stuff. But regardless, 
Now the American people can compare a Biden presidency to a Trump presidency. How could they possibly not see the sort of self-evident thing that these Trump voters believe, which is that Donald Trump was a better president, the economy was better, inflation was better, foreign policy was better, yada, yada, yada. So like, they don't see it. And then the third bucket is, you've got to be kidding me. Donald Trump uh, maybe committed a paper crime, fine, or not, but, you know, he was president. He can take whatever papers he wants. But like your worst case scenario is he committed a paper crime. And in the meantime, Joe Biden is uh, peddling his influence, bringing in millions through his son, and nobody's even bothering to care about it or talk about it. So yeah, I'm not going to care about what Donald Trump did until they care about what Joe Biden did. So I was more thinking about his opponents, but then I thought this is interesting. Let's see where Sarah goes with this. Um, so because and this actually kind of gets but, to but it doesn't matter who the opponents are because they're not shopping. Right. Opponents only matter when you're shopping. And right now the number one number that I look at over and over again and it's getting worse, quote unquote, for his challengers not better is who do you think is best able to take on Joe Biden in the general election? Mm-hmm. Until and unless that number drops for Donald Trump, they're not shopping. It does not matter what Nikki Haley says or Ron DeSantis for that matter. Um if they think Donald Trump's their strongest option against Joe Biden. They're going with Donald Trump. And so what what would you advise Ron DeSantis to say last night or this morning after these indictments drop? Not not for the good of the republic, but for the yeah, good yeah, of his yeah, campaign. Yeah, but <laughs> for good of the republic. <laughs> That's David French likes to refer to it as like, please be grifter, Sarah. Just like they've paid you a million dollars. Go <laughs> fix their campaign. Don't worry about the country. And it took me a minute, like maybe 10 seconds. And I was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Grifter Sarah's back. Um, uh, look, back up for a second to sort of the overall zeitgeist of the DeSantis campaign. Um, because I think they've done some things right that just didn't pan out. And then they've done some things really wrong. So, and this goes to my old adage that I feel really, really strongly about that when you're studying campaigns or you're studying politics, the winning team didn't do everything right and the losing team didn't do everything wrong. And maybe more to the point, sometimes the best strategy doesn't win. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a good strategy. And yet I feel like in news media coverage, you see these blaring headlines. And I'm going to give this example of, you know, DeSantis super PAC blows through huge amounts of money, um, you know, right after he announces and like, look, his numbers dropped. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the super PAC should have been doing. Right. They should have right. been blowing all their money. Now, maybe they didn't blow it on the right things. Maybe there were too many staff. Like we can quibble about the how. Maybe they should have paid less to Getty images for Nazi symbols. But you know, the, you know, these are reason these are prudential questions. <laughs> but, but absolutely something, if you're Ron DeSantis, your play is to be the alternative to Donald Trump. What you want your super PAC out there doing right away is just blowing gobs of money to mm. define you, to define the race, and to make sure that it's, you know, you and Donald Trump. Now, again, it didn't work, but it was the right, again, overarching strategy. So um, I think that the uh, DeSantis campaign made a huge mistake by not being incredibly disciplined on the electability question when Trump's electability was far more tenuous in a general election. You had numbers 
you know, six months ago, four months ago, showing DeSantis in a much stronger position against Joe Biden. That should have been their message every day. The where woke goes to die slogan is irrelevant if people aren't shopping. Right, right. (laughs) And if they think they like Donald Trump, they know Donald Trump, they think he was a good president, they think he's been treated unfairly, you're not going to convince them to leave him because he's too woke or something. The only reason they're going to start shopping is because they don't think he can win. Now they like dabbled in that. They dabbled in the fact that he can only serve one term, but it would be like sticking their toes in the water and then jumping out and running across to the other pool. Um, So I, I think that was their biggest mistake overall. Okay, but mistakes were made. Now we're where we are. What should they have done with the indictment? Well, that's a little tough because, right, the polling now shows that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are neck and neck. I still think my overall strategy is right unless and until you can change that electability number it doesn't matter what else you say. So I would have put out a statement that said, um, these charges might be political. The Department of Justice might be corrupt. But at the end of the day, they're never going to stop. He can't be an effective president like this. He can't beat Joe Biden. That's their goal, is to make sure he can't beat Joe Biden. Do not give them the satisfaction. You gotta, we gotta look for someone else who won't have that baggage, can serve two terms. Like you just, you've got to keep trying to get to the electability question with these voters. And again, it might not work, but I just don't see any other way around it. And the policy stuff is baffling to me. They didn't pick Donald Trump on policy to begin with. Why in the world would they abandon him on policy now? Yeah, so it's funny on the DeSantis thing. I mean, I I think some of that sort of, you know, he has, he's on the spectrum stuff was overblown and it's not like, People on the spectrum, some of whom are closest friends, um, can't be like very decent, normal people and all that kind of stuff. And I I think that got a little out of hand. That said, whether it's on the spectrum or just that he has low EQ or whatever, like a lot of my friends would say, who cares? And I kind of agree with them. Like, so he's bad at schmoozing and hanging out with donors. That's great. That's, I would prefer that in a politician. But I think this is the connective tissue to why he's a problematic candidate is that the stuff he likes to do is focus on a theory and a problem to solve, right? And that's why he was good about opening the bridge and that kind of thing. That's why he was good on COVID. He's like reading policy papers. He got committed. He convinced himself of a theory of the GOP electorate and he couldn't let go of it because he was like, I'm right. I have done the math. I am correct. And he couldn't read the room of the GOP primary electorate and say, you know, this isn't working. He was just sort of like, I will keep hammering this nail and eventually it'll go into the wood. And that's why he's sort of in the mess that he's in now. And you know what else? There's just a chance that Ron DeSantis was never going to be the challenger for Donald Trump that people hoped he was going to be. And that no matter what strategy they used and no matter how well executed, the Republican primary voters, because of events outside DeSantis's control, like multiple indictments, Donald Trump sucking up all the oxygen, all sorts of things that they weren't going to be able to get it done. And again, it doesn't mean their strategy was wrong. Yeah, so it's funny. I, I, so I wrote my LA Times column about it. It's up at the dispatch now. Um, I went back and I looked, you know, there's, so there's new New York Times, Siena poll. Nate Cohen makes the case that nobody with a greater than 20 point lead has ever lost the nomination if they've had it at this point um, in the race. And there's a reason why he picked 20 points is because Howard Dean had 19 points in 2004. And then 
crashed and burned. And it seems to me that like the problem, particularly people of our class, our milieu, um, we are constantly looking for explanation for solutions that candidates can do or that lawyers can do or that the justice system can do or that the par- institutions can do. And it turns out that this is the great irony of where the GOP is today. Donald Trump's support is based in large part, not entirely, but in large part by the widespread view that he is the guy who can, dis- who can take on these powerful institutions. And the fact that he is as popular as he is and has been as successful as he is, is proof that those institutions aren't very powerful. Because if the establishment could have stopped him, it would have, right? If the deep state could have stopped him, it would have. If the GOP was a fraction of the party it should be, it would have prevented him from becoming president. He would have been impeached. He would have been removed this first impeachment, never mind the second impeachment. The reality is, is like these institutions aren't very powerful, which is why he thrives. But he convinces people they're extremely powerful and only he can fight them. And the only solution at this point, because those institutions and those forces are actually so weak to this, is going to be if voters change their mind at the last minute. That's it. And that's very frustrating because it means we've got the people who want to change things have got nothing to do except maybe make arguments like what you're making the point about electability that cause people to change their mind at the last minute. And it's entirely possible that people change their mind at the last minute and just say, hey, you know, Biden's numbers are picking up. The economy is getting better. And Trump may not be the guy to, to beat Biden. But or Biden could step down and somebody else could be running. And they're like, oh, my gosh, Trump can't beat Gavin Newsom or Trump can't beat whoever. But now we're getting kind of like Superman versus the Hulk kind of fantasizing. I think this is where the indictment strengthens Trump. Yeah, I, I agree. Because it is so big and serious. It does. If you're already in that camp, um, it does look like something that a lot of other candidates couldn't withstand. And it does look like they're trying to prevent Donald Trump from being president at all costs. Um, and so F those guys, right? Like we got to protect our dude. It makes it much harder to shop. And again, shamelessness is a superpower. And so any other, any remotely normal, patriotic, decent human being would say, I'm not going to put the country through this. And again, if you're a Republican primary voter, you think that that's the plan that the Democrats have. Right. And so again, it just, it's like self-fulfilling. Like they're doing everything they can to prevent him from running for president. And uh, yeah, another candidate would step aside, which is why we need Donald Trump. Because finally we have, you know, a man running for president. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. So it's, it's so Tom Wolfian, right? I mean, or even, you know, sort of allegorical. The candidate of America first literally won't put America first. <laughs> you know, um, it's very frustrating. It's, it's, it's enough to um, drive one to, to day drink more. Um, okay. Let's put all this stuff aside. It's going to be talked to death forever. We can do all that another time. Um, one legal thing, because I, I told you in advance that people like it when we fight. Yeah. And I guess so I got one legal thing because I was listening to AO when I was driving here. And you and David went over um, Alito's uh, interview with the Wall Street Journal. I agree with most of your takes is what, to one extent or another. Um, 
But at one point, Alito says, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't see any difference in the interpretive method of the liberal justices. They're all the same. And you took a exception to this and said that uh, you just think he's flat out wrong here because they end up on different sides of various cases. And that shows that they've got in different, different interpretive methods. And I disagree with you here. And Ooh. I'll explain very briefly why. This is going to be a real hot take for Jonah to do, given he hasn't read all the cases. Oh, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> but I'm talking about a priori as a mode of logic here where I think you're wrong. Uh, later in the actual podcast, and many times in other settings, you have made the point, and you did made the point, that originalism doesn't necessarily always lead people to the same positions, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So why should we expect a interpretive method which basically says, I'm just going to go with what I think is right, wouldn't lead three people to lead, come to different perspectives from time to time? Okay. These people have agency. They're different human beings as an ontological yes. matter. I... Yes. Okay. To the extent you think their interpretive method is I decide cases the way I want to, we're platonic guardians, um, mm -hmm. th then totally fine. You're right. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Great for having <laughs> on. <laughs> that's not an interpretive method to me, but actually I, I see your point that like, yes, but that's what, you know, let's take out the current Supreme Court, for instance, 50 years ago, that is what Supreme Court justices really thought they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. I took uh, Alito's point to be a little bit more nuanced than that, but maybe I'm just wrong about that. I'll, I'll. No, I mean, but look at this way. Like I, 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 and one day we can have a broader conversation about it because I'm kind of interested in, so I, I have a huge, huge chip on my shoulder philosophically against philosophical pragmatism, which is different than being practical, right? So like, one of the problems is that pragmatism as a word in everyday use is very different than the philosophical school that has, that shares the same name. And so like uh, being practical in real life is fine, but pragmatism as a philosophical approach is different. And legal pragmatism is sort of similar um, to philosophical pragmatism. If you are a consequentialist, which is the term you guys were using, you are going to make good faith, let's assume good faith on everybody's part, good faith cost-benefit analysis about the results of your decision. Consequentialism is a interpretive method, right? Um, but it doesn't guarantee that everybody who's a consequentialist will score the consequences the same. So you could end up on different sides of all sorts of things. That's my only point. I said I was looking for something to fight with you about. So, like, if this doesn't work, that's fine. We can move on. <laughs> no, I think, I think you raise a very good point. But I guess my argument back to that is it means there's something else going on, right? So, like, this is my two axes argument. Mm -hmm. That, And I think you're just disagreeing that you need a second axis, that the one axis alone, um, you know, people see the duck or the rabbit, and it doesn't mean they have a different interpretive method. Right. That, that's probably lost on most people listening to a podcast. Well, it's a blue um, dress. It's not a gold one. 
dress. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry. I think I would say that even for like the original, let's go back to your original point on originalism, that originalism can lead to different results, but it means there's some different inputs coming in. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you think like David French, for instance, that, uh, you know, I'm an originalist, but what you do is you look at the text first. If the text is unambiguous, you never get to originalism. Yeah, I disagree with David on that too. I thought he was very unpersuasive on that point, but we can get to that. But in a fine. But like, I don't know then that you're saying that originalism, that like, that's not the same originalism. It means there's some other axis going on in mm-hmm, this case, mm-hmm. textualism versus originalism or something. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we're not in violent disagreement. I think you're just looking at the duck and I'm looking at the rabbit. Okay, so I do have a question then. You think, you seem to imply, it was an emanation from the penumbra of your comments that you seem to imply that they have different interpretive methods. Yeah. And you once told me that you think living constitutionalism is kind of gone on the left. It's not really a thing anymore. It's not, it's not fetch. Um, it's not streets ahead. Um, so what are their interpretive methods? Like what, what is the, what is the reigning interpretive method for, for liberal jurisprudence right now? Like as a school? Oh, so here's what I think is really fascinating. I think it's a lot of textualism and originalism. Mm-hmm. But this idea that originalism was always going to lean conservative, I just think was not ever true. Um, and again, you look at the Bostock case. This is the because of sex in employment discrimination and whether that includes uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, Neil Gorsuch saying that eh, it includes that. That's just what the because of sex means. Um, so that didn't lead to a conservative result, at least for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, I think that for the liberal justices, they're applying versions of textualism and originalism, but through a just a totally different lens. Now, I I think a lot of people would say that lens then isn't originalism because they're sort of, what could, what did they mean back in the day but in a broader sense, in a less specific sense. So for mm-hmm. instance, take the gun rights debate, and this is something that I have beef with as well. Okay, if you're looking at history, text, and tradition, how specific does it need to be to right. be an analogy to what we're talking about? They didn't have the guns we have. They didn't have the society we have. And so liberals are willing to look at a much more generalized analogy, and conservatives want a more specific analogy. But you're still kind of doing the same interpretive method. Okay, so the one, I mean, there are places we could go with this, but I, I want to get to a different topic. But I just want to say, I think you're wrong in one sense, and I don't think you actually disagree with me in, the, in that when you say, it's sort of like your, your tripart- tripartite understanding of the court. There are the institutionalists, there are the ideologues, and then there was one other, what was it? The, anyway. The liberals. You know, I'm sorry? And then the liberals. <laughs> the okay, liberals. Right. <laughs> right, because it's really a 3-3-3 court, not a 6-3 court, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's a very helpful way of thinking about things. The, in, the institutionalists are conservative in a different sense, right? So there's, there's, when you talk about conservatism, it's a problem, it's sort of like the same problem I have with pragmatism. When we talk about conservatism in, in American life, there's big C conservatism and small C conservatism. And I think originalism is inherently and inescapably small C conservative, even when the liberals do it. Because if you 
start from the premise that the Supreme Court cannot deviate from the stuff that's just like written down. Um, and you can have an argument about what the meaning of the stuff written down is, but you can't just go and invent stuff that's not in there. You have to have an argument about how it's connected to the rules. Um, that's conservative. Absolutely. That's small, small C conservative. It just, it limits the ability for the court to just do whatever it wants, right? The, the constitution ceases being Felix the cat's magic bag. Yeah. So, I, and there is not just a sense. I would argue that the conservative legal movement, which again, I think some of us thought was a small C conservative legal movement. And some of us thought was a big C conservative legal movement. The small C conservative legal movement hasn't just won. It has, um, you know, it, like there's winning on a field of battle where you best your enemies. And then there's winning in like the evolutionary sense. Right. Winning hearts and minds. Yeah. Like there's no Neanderthals left on the planet. They had it coming. We homo sapiens won. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, small C conservatives eviscerated the Neanderthals uh, in the sense exactly what you're saying the small C conservative idea of originalism, this idea that there is a constitution, it's written that you have to ground your arguments in that somehow and what the intent was behind it uh, has ended this platonic guardian ideal, at least in terms of what people are willing to say out loud. Now, there's always going to be some platonic guardianness in every person who's going to serve on the Supreme Court because there's only nine of them and the weight of it is real. Just like any other of these you know, jobs, being a senator or president or anything else. I hope there's some weight to that in some sense that you're here to do more than staple papers, you know, like there's, you're part of a grander experiment. But as I said, like 50 years ago, the Supreme Court was just like, I don't know, what do you think the rules on abortion should be? Right, 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 right. <laughs> Okay, switching gears uh, to some really easy, quick topic. The state of men today. Oof. You Earlier you talked about, uh, you, you made reference to Trump's manliness. Yeah. And I'm growing one, don't forget. That's right. You have, you have um, uh, one on the way. It's very exciting. Have you figured out a name? Absolutely not. Uh, Scott nixed Lampshade the other night. So I don't know. I'm back to the drawing board. I think that's smart. Lampshade is literally, I, I know you're just looking around your room, finding inanimate objects yeah, and saying, yes. you know. this is, this is Steve Martin and the jerk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I think the better analogy is actually Brick Tamlin and Anchorman, right? It's just like, oh, I yeah, love, yeah. I love lamp. <laughs> um, but um, my, the, the moms out there will understand when I say that we've reached belly button equilibrium. Okay. <laughs> like that's how pregnant I am. Uh, so men. So you're raising, you're raising men. You're married to one. You're talking to one. And they're everywhere. There was this boomlet a little while ago. while I was too busy to engage in it. Uh, Washington Post had this big essay about how men are in real trouble. They are. I think my friends at NR were a little too harsh on it. You mean all your male friends at NR? I think there might have even been a female friend that, uh, doing it. But anyway, <laughs> my point is, I think particularly as it you know is it overlaps with what I'm seeing in our world of young right-wingers, yeah, like the toxic masculinity thing, which I used, to, it's sort of like there is this, the wish being the father of the thought dynamic that is defining so much of our politics these days. When the left started talking about white supremacy, I thought it was outrageous, right? And, 
And the problem is, is that it then conjured a whole bunch of people who are like, yeah, white supremacy, that sounds good, right? Toxic masculinity was used about things that weren't particularly toxic, weren't particularly bad, but like, you know, pulling out chairs for women is not toxic masculinity. But you talk about toxic masculinity so much, you create a subsidy or an incentive structure for people to actually be toxic assholes. And, um, and there's a, just a riot of that on the right these days. See, that's interesting. Wait, wait, wait on this for a second. You think that it didn't exist before and that it is new instead of the alternative, which is it was there, but these people couldn't find each other. They couldn't find a community. They didn't really have a name to call it, but like that it was there the whole time, whether you're talking about white supremacy or toxic masculinity. I'm not. Yeah, even- no, 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 no. I, so, I, so my point is, my point was a little different. It was in so far as look, have there been white supremacists? Absolutely. There always have been. Have there been male jackasses? I don't think I need to tell you that there have always been male jackasses. Uh, that would be the ultimate mansplaining. Uh, but um, so Sarah, if you remember, back- <laughs> you may not know this. Let me explain. Some men are jerks. Women couldn't even vote. Um, I'm not, so, but my point is, is that when these terms started making it into widespread discourse in the early 2000s, the stuff that they were using it to describe was not, you know, like, again. Right. Punctuality is not white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mansplaining is not like uh, being a member of the Klan um, and, uh, and having too many male characters on a t- too many white characters on a TV show is not Jim Crow, right? But they would use this language in ways that heightened everything, created a sort of white male identitarianism that really kind of didn't exist before. Sure, it was in the culture, but it got hardened and calcified and caricatured. And then the, these people owned Your point it. is it is what allowed them to find each other. Yes, it's sort of, for, it's, it's, a, it's a galvanic process, yes, right? Yes, yes. And, um, and like so much of our right-wing culture these days is people saying it's it's sort of you're damn right i i ordered the code redism all over the place they want to own the caricatures and be jerks and um anyway i i i have this idea and i just want to float it off of you and then you can run away with it so the economy is changing it is friendlier to a lot of speaking of grotesquely broad characterizations, it is the the changing nature of the economy, the changing nature of the role of education plays in the economy, helping professions, all the rest. It's more female than it's ever been, right? It's more conducive towards absolutely, like more more than I think people like. I think they're comparing it to fifty years ago. Compare it to five thousand years ago, five hundred years ago. The role that men played in society. Um, in terms of fending off the lions, then in terms of fending off your, you know, neighbors or warlord or whatever, like you always needed um, that physical war-ish side of men. Then even go 200 years ago, industrial revolution, we needed the physical labor side. Um, And you just keep creeping and creeping into less and less physical labor, physical needs, warlike tendencies, violent tendencies, as society became less violent, less physical. And so that now the role of a man in the household is very, very different. And it's a problem. So like, I think this is just generally agreed upon by like people who pay attention to this stuff is that 
you know, the old economy where a strong back and a hard work ethic were a ticket to sort of the middle class. And it's different now. Right. And that's a problem for men. And we know there's all this really disturbing data that when women start making more money than men, men get all sorts of problems. And there's also the added problem that among elite women, they still want to marry men who make more money. They still want to, you know, there's this whole thing. Anyway, I've been trying to think about this. Your value add is getting more difficult to, to make. Frankly, we can we can freeze your sperm for decades. Like we just, you're not providing a whole lot. Look, dog, dogs don't tweet pictures of themselves. So um, <laughs> uh, that said, it seems to me like, and this is the part I want to bounce off of. So we've stipulated all that for a long time, for good or for ill. A lot of women's role in society was out was more outside the formal economy than in. Mothers, teachers, uh, community leaders, you know, every successful parent association in a school, there's some woman who is just a supercharged, impressive person behind it, but it was sort of invisible in the meritocracy, economic scorecard kind of thing. Not invisible, but less so, right? You know what I mean? Absolutely. How, How do we create a role in civil society that does something similar for the best aspects of men that isn't gladiatorial fighting. Do you have any ideas on this point? Or am I wrong to even try to think that we should come up with something like that? I I think you've got some real challenges in thinking of it in any sort of parallel structure. And I know you're not saying it needs to be one-to-one parallel, but like even the mindset of... Right. You're not going to get men to make do bake sales the way women (laughs) did in the 1950s. And this is not disparaging anybody. It's just different orientations. No, but let's... I think it's important to to discern why, which is that men by nature, and God, raising a little boy. So in my COVID mom pod, it's all girls and I have the only boy. And like, <laughs> at first they're babies, right? They're all the same. We're like, oh, we're doing the same things. They all sit up at the same time. They smile at the same time, whatever. <laughs> and now you're like, what in the world? I had, I mean, I thought that sort of these gender roles were inherent, but like, holy crap, I just had no concept of just how early and ingrained um, some of this really was already. So um, Nate turned three. The rest of the, some of the baby girls are a little younger. Uh, One is a little bit older. And they're so interested and focused on the interpersonal. Mm -hmm. They're practicing their future psychological warfare on each other, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this is what, they're, they're getting geared up for junior high um, and then learning to hide it better after that. Uh, Nate, of course, wants to make things into guns and swords. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's not, you know, <laughs> I ask him all the time, you know, he goes to a little preschool and he has a little best friend there. And I ask him all the time, like what he and the best friend did, what did the best friend say? What did the best friend eat for lunch? I mean, anything <laughs> like Nate can't tell you. He doesn't care. <laughs> All he can tell you is that they played firefighters um, and that, you know, this best friend fell off the log or the best friend, you know, didn't cry too much when he got hurt, whatever. And you can expand that to men's roles in society and why I think the struggle is going to get worse because women have a much easier time making friends, keeping mm-hmm. friends and finding ways to form those bonds those interpersonal bonds, men don't 
derive a whole lot from that. It's much harder for them to do it. You're far more likely to bond, quote unquote, by like watching a game together and talking about facts versus talking about feelings. Well, it's always going to be harder to form long-term bonds over facts. They're just not the same. And so I don't think the answer is like the Elk Club or, you know, the American Legion or things that were allowing men with similar experiences to sit in rooms together and talk about facts together. And again, like you said at the beginning, these are some large generalizations about men and women, of course. But if you're trying to look for sort of a civil society answer, you need to look at those large generalizations. Um, And I think one of the bigger problems, I'll be curious what you think about this, given things I know about you. In marriage has changed really, really bigly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've acknowledged that very well as a society. You used to get married as a quasi-business proposition. If you had affection for the person, that was great. And it was going to help a lot, by the way. But um, you were a partnership mm-hmm. and you were running a little corporation. It was not the end-all and be-all of all of your psychosocial needs <laughs> to come home at the end of the day and get all of that from your spouse. Mm-hmm. But now it kind of is. Mm-hmm. It's less of a corporation. And it's more, this is supposed to be your best friend. You're supposed to be able to talk to them about everything. It is supposed to be bigger and um, more satisfying and more purpose-driven than your other friendships. That didn't used to be the case for men. And while I think women are still doing a pretty good job maintaining their outside friendships in marriage, men, I think, are increasingly looking at their wives as like, well, this is my human relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to be really hard on any marriage if you need all the things from one person. That's going to be very unlikely. Some people are going to find that. Most won't. Yeah. I mean, my problem is, is like, I think you're right from what I read about the humans, but um, it doesn't completely track with my own personal experience. Like, I, it's weird. I grew up, I, I was in a minority in my class because my parents weren't divorced. Yeah. When I growing up in the seventies and I didn't know anybody almost, I, I can say I didn't know anybody, but divorce was pretty rare among my peers for the last 20 years. And then all of a sudden it's popping up all over the place. And, um, I don't know what explains it. Maybe it's the age that we're at, you know, whatever. Um, but I have a lot of friends who don't necessarily see their marriages that way but i'm you know i'm 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 older than you i'm almost as old as david french so doesn't that mean their marriage has just failed to do that for them possibly they're gonna go look somewhere else for that thing that i don't think probably exists or should possibly should be the purpose of marriage by the way i'm now picturing jonah coming home every day and just like talking jessica's ear off she does think i talk too much <laughs> and him being like i don't know what sarah's talking about this is exactly like what like my marriage it's exactly this. She is my best friend. I talk to her about everything. She is my human and I love her and squeeze her. <laughs> and Jessica's like, I hope he never retires. <laughs> so it's, it's, so it's funny. Um, we, uh, I have this group of guys. It's not all of my close friends, but it's a big chunk of them. And it's this bunch of dudes that we were having a good time in the 1990s with, and we've stayed close and, uh, and every, but it's hard kids, jobs, whatever. We have a deal. Every Christmas time, we have this holidays party, D-A-Z-E. Oh, no, we got it. And it got to the point where about 15 years in, all of us would get yelled at by our wives when we went home that night because they would ask all sorts of questions like, how are their kids? Or how's the wife? Or 
you know, what's going on with so and and any questions about their lives. And like none of us knew we sat together for four hours drinking and we didn't ask any of those questions or talk about any of those things. So now this now for like the last 10 years, we have to do a go around the table and give us the information about yourself that we can report back to our wives conversation. I'm surprised y'all don't come with little handouts and like everyone has to collect the handouts like Valentine's Day cards from your classmates. That may be coming. That's entirely possible. It'd be more efficient. All right. I know you have to go record an exciting episode of AO, but I would like to revisit this manhood marriage conversation again um, before too long. Yeah, because I also think what you just said is really interesting um, that you have this group of friends that y'all really uh, carve out time to see one another because David French does something very similar. I think that is very rare. Yeah. Well, and also we also don't do it very often. I mean, we have to, we have to schedule it months in advance just to like once a year is get it done is fine. I think, um, I really focus or rather I, I try to be very pushy to Scott, um, to make sure that he feels like he can always go see his guy friends and they have these little outings. Now the 10 day, bachelor party 18 months after the guy got married mm-hmm. that felt like a bit much i gotta say yeah. but i tried not to complain too much <laughs> i'm not gonna throw him under the bus on that i just i i, I hear your feelings i hear what you're saying <laughs> but uh, to your larger question about civil society we can tell men that those relationships are important i don't know how you build something for that i had a friend recently send her husband by the way have you seen that snl skit where the wives drop their husbands off at the like it's a dog park, but for husbands. <laughs> no, but I like it. It's one of the great SNL skits of the last 10 years. Um, aside from the Republican or not skit, which was also great. The like, my body, my choice. <laughs> oh, that's definitely not a Republican. Or wait, vaccines? <laughs> Is it? Um, okay, so the dropping your husband off at the dog park is awesome. So she did an equivalent of this. She found a men's retreat. I think it was out in like Montana or Idaho or something. And it's not a religious cult and it's not a health cult. It's just for men who are middle-aged, who are having trouble making friends. Oh, geez. (laughs) And like, right. That's going to be a problem. Yeah. Although I I just want to, I want to just, just, just to be clear, less listeners are confused by this. You turned it into, which was an interesting conversation. I'm glad you did, but you turned it into a conversation about men's relationships and friendships I'm trying to figure out a way that men, because the problem is men, society gets into real problems when young men feel like they are low status. Because when men feel like they are low status, they they invade Poland or they do other bad things, right? Yeah, but I think it's all, it's all connected, Jonah, because they're looking at their middle-aged fathers and seeing them unhappy, unrespected, unrespected, sorry. Uh, and so they're saying like, I, I don't want to end up like that. So why are there middle-aged fathers in that situation, economically, socially, et cetera, and addicted to opioids or off the grid, they left mom, whatever it is, like you got to solve it. I think you got to solve that problem before you can get to the youngins. Hmm. They're looking at a society that doesn't value men anymore and they're not wrong. And it's going to get worse. It's definitely going to get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. All right. Sarah <laughs> Hey, look, I'll keep you here as long as you want to stay, but I know you're supposed to start recording in like nine minutes. So like, I'm trying to be, trying to be a gracious host here. <laughs> you think I prepare for that legal podcast? <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll keep you around, you know, have just David sitting there twiddling his thumb playing World of Warcraft or something waiting for you. That's fine by me. 
All right. All right. We've kept your listeners long enough, but I feel like it was just getting good. Yeah. yeah, It was just like, this is the part that is way more fun to talk about than my sad sack about the indictment. Yeah. All right. So let's plan on you coming back and we'll start from where we left off kind of thing. Yay. Young Nazis. (laughs) At least young Nazis are Nazis in the sort of aspirational abstract sense. The old ones were actual Nazis. Um, so there's yes that. And no, but don't you feel like we do have a bit of a cycle of the young Nazis? I mean, can't you see sort of the French Revolution in a bit of a young Nazi? Sure, sure, uh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like every few generations, people look above them, don't see a lot of movement, don't want to turn into that. And instead of, you know, sort of working within the system, they're like, I've got an idea. Let's burn down the system. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of that. I also think there's a lot of what C.S. Lewis would call breeding men without chests. So you have men who have very little sense of honor, decency, right and wrong. They're kind of nihilistic. And that makes them actually hungry for meaning and greatness in unhealthy ways. And um, um, anyway, see, this is the conversation we should have started with, but you got to go. And I can't believe I'm the one being the responsible party here. So Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. We'll have you back soon. Yay. Okay, so Sarah has left the studio, and um, I want to thank her for rolling with everything, and thank all you guys for rolling with everything with my crazy travel schedule. Um, During uh, the interregnum after Sarah left, Adam asked me to clarify something about that I said, and for his edification, perhaps for for listeners, apparently I was somewhat ambiguous or equivocal or something when I was making this point about how the institutions are weak, uh, that Trump says that he is, uh, you know, uh, being attacked by, right? I wrote about this not too long ago. It's like, if the deep state, here's my point. If the deep state were remotely as powerful, not just as like what the QAnon people claim, right? Um, um, but just like, or what Steve Bannon claims or Donald Trump claims, right? If the deep state were a fraction of the, uh, monstrously hegemonic power that it is, they could have gotten rid of Donald Trump, right? They could have done all sorts of things and they haven't been able to. And uh, if the Republican party was, you know, the establishment, uh, if the GOP establishment were nearly as powerful as all of these would be revolutionaries and radicals claim it is, um, the would-be radicals and revolutionaries would be pushed out of the party. Like, you wouldn't have people like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and J.D. Vance and, and whoever else um, having the success that they have. The problem is, is that the parties are too weak, not that they're too strong. Um, you know, there was this, I wrote about it last week, this David Azarad piece over at the American Conservative, where he's got, he's all beer muscly about how much courage and manliness it takes to fight this incredibly entrenched establishment that runs everything and controls everything. And it's all nonsense. It's all sort of like, um, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, and it's, I don't want to single out David Azarad. It's all over the place, right? It is the defining ethos of vast swaths of the new right that, you know, they are, you know, including Patrick Deneen's book, Regime Change, right? Is that they're taking on this incredibly powerful complex of forces and that they're the underdogs and they're heroic and they're, sort of Spartan 300 courage for tackling these things when in fact they're pushing on open doors. And as long as you have voters on your side, you can pretty much get whatever you want in the GOP and the establishment is 
um, a handful of overwhelmed, exhausted people like Mitch McConnell, not this incredibly powerful thing. And so like Donald Trump benefits from the fact that he is this avatar or paragon um, or paladin of uh, the fight against these incredibly powerful institutions. And because the base of the party has convinced itself that these establishments are incredibly powerful and, and monolithic. And in reality, the fear of mere fact of Donald Trump's success proves that these institutions aren't very powerful at all. Otherwise, they would have stopped him from getting the power that he's gotten. And I think that, that this is sort of the great paradox of American politics, or at least of conservative politics these days, is everybody is, all these people think that they're being incredibly brave and courageous for being outsiders. And they all have to paint themselves as outsiders. Ted Cruz talks about himself as an outsider, right, against the elites, where Ted Cruz, by any serious historic political science, social science, logic uh, analysis, Ted Cruz is an insider. He's a member of the most exclusive club in the world. Um, he's been there for a very long time. And, uh, and he's an elite. And, but everyone wants to be the maverick on the outside and you can only pretend that you're a maverick on the outside if, uh, if you have something to be maverick against, right? You, have, you can't pretend you're Luke Skywalker if there's no Death Star, right? You have to pretend that you are this heroic revolutionary taking on entrenched power. Um, and so you have to conjure entrenched power that actually doesn't sort of exist. And this is sort of what I was getting at with Sarah, is that at the end of the day, the people who are going to figure out how to stop Trump the only people who have power to stop Trump are GOP primary voters. And they may just decide on a, you know, for whatever mysterious reason, you know, that he's the Howard Dean of the 2024 cycle and, and vote against him. I hate that feeling of just sort of, you know, wait and see, you know, you know, let the people decide kind of thing. And I'm not being inconsistent about this because I hate primaries. And I think that the GOP and the Democratic Party made a profound mistake outsourcing these decisions to a very tiny slice of the electorate, but that's democracy for you. That's where we are. And that's how I think it's going to work out. Um, and I think that it would, if you're going to try to get people to change their minds at the last minute, one of the arguments that you should focus on, as Sarah was saying, is the electability thing. Um, another is to start unpacking and unraveling and deconstructing this bogus idea that, you know, rhino squishy moderates are running the GOP and the only heroic candidates are the ones who promise to take on this squishy moderate establishment. Mitch McConnell is the most conservative Senate majority leader I think America has ever had, um, certainly in the modern period. He's also the most effective one. I mean, he's having trouble right now, but, um, cause he's old and he had fell and all that, but John Boehner and Paul Ryan were the most conservative House um, speaker, speakers of the House in modern times. And yet the problem is there is this insipid, juvenile idea that runs powerfully through parts of the right that assumes that if you are in power, it must be because you've compromised with the deep state, with the moderates, with, with the powers that be, with the Democrats, and therefore you are impure. And so almost the definition of 
a rhino cuck sellout is somebody who actually wants to be an insider and use power effectively to legislate, to get things done. That is a sign of weakness um, for a lot of people in the shout show right these days. And it's why the GOP is so unbelievably dysfunctional. And that kind of climate gets you people like Donald Trump because you create this fictional, uh, you know, evil fortress that only he can fight. And if, if you're convinced that the evil fortress exists, then you're going to be open to the argument that he's the only one who can fight it. And, um, and you can convince people that, you know, Donald Trump likes to say, if, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not indicting me. They're indicting you. They're not coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. This is utter and complete garbage. It's an incredibly stupid idea. Um, but it's also very smart psychologically and politically on the facts. It's ridiculous. And, and, and I've been very consistent about this because they made the exact same arguments about Bill Clinton when he was impeached. They're like, if they can do this to him, they can do this to anybody. If they're, they're not coming after Bill Clinton, they're coming after you. They want to control your life and your bedroom and all this kind of stuff and blah, 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 blah. And it is this tendency to sort of take individuals and turn them into metaphors for everybody. Donald Trump is not fighting for you. Donald Trump is not standing between you and the federal government charging you with uh, trying to steal an election or mishandling classified documents. And that's why I'm more and more in favor of courts of law to settle these kinds of things, because in courts of law, you actually have to look at the specifics that an individual person, um, you know, did or didn't do and not do these broad metaphorical garbage arguments. Okay. So I don't know if that was helpful, um, but Adam set me off on that. So I figured I would say that I uh, will be recording the solo podcast from my undisclosed location. And then I'm back in DC uh, for a while. Um, some travel stuff again, which I can talk to you guys about later, but thanks for listening. Thanks to everybody who put up with my crazy schedule and made it possible for me to do the stuff that I've done over the last couple of weeks. Thank you for all the people who had kind words for my wife, Jessica, for her crazy adventures, um, in the Alps. And, um, that's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.